Welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I'm your host, Nicole, and this podcast is your guide to start creating a lifestyle by design. From entrepreneurship, money and finance, taxes and residencies, and everything in between, this show highlights the nuances of a true global citizen lifestyle. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. In today's episode, I sit down with our guest, Jamie Edwards. So Jamie is a photographer and award-winning travel writer. Her website, which is I Am Lost and Found, is a place that inspires both adventure and luxury in travel. Many places excel at either one of these, but only a few excel at both, and she uses her blog and her content to really highlight this unique side of travel. She's a passionate writer and her favorite travel experiences she shares with the world, like the most remote place to stay in in Northern Iceland, how to reserve a table at the most coveted restaurant in the world, and how to find the best safari outfitter to track the silverbacks in Uganda. Her goal is to deliver inspiration through brands, destinations, and people that define the highest level of aesthetics, service, excursions, and culinary experiences. She currently lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and kids. However, she has lived in Tokyo and New York City among traveling to countless destinations in the past. In this episode, we dive into what it looks like to really be a travel writer and blogger for more luxurious travel destinations and excursions, what her recent trip to Antarctica looked like, as well as raising her kids in different cultures, including in Tokyo in Japan. If you love travel and you are ready to get your travel on for 2024, this is the episode for you. So let's dive right into it. Jamie, welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. Before we dive into all things work, wealth, and travel, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your story, where you got started, and what that looks like for you today? I'm really excited to be here. I started my life and career in New York City in advertising and design. I went to school for communication design and spent 15 years in New York City, mostly doing art direction, creative direction. After our life in New York City ended, which was basically because my husband got a job in Tokyo, we wrapped up our two kids and all our belongings and we flew out to Japan and we spent four years there, which was a real gift because we both, my husband and I both are huge travel lovers and we really looked at that as an opportunity to get to know and explore Southeast Asia. And we did. We spent every time that we had a long weekend, we traveled, whether it was throughout Japan, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, Bali, we took full advantage of living on the other side of the world. And along that time, I've just always been very interested in food and wine, photography, the intersection of all of those things. And when we finally moved back to the United States in 2010, One of my close friends from Tokyo suggested that I put together a blog. She said, people are always asking you questions about travel, whether it's, I'm going to Buenos Aires, where should I have dinner? Or I'd like to go to Finland in the winter. Do you have any suggestions of any lodges? So 
I thought to myself that that would be something really a great creative outlet for me. I spent years and years raising kids. I was no longer in advertising or design, learned all things WordPress, SEO, and often Monster, and put together a website called I Am Lost and Found. And the goal of I Am Lost and Found is very simply to inspire people to travel. Tell a firsthand story about the places I've been, hoping that it inspires people to travel there too. So I don't say, Nicole, when you go here, you should stay at this hotel. You should eat at this restaurant. I tell the story of where I've been. And if that sounds good to you, you can go ahead and book it. I love that. I like the how specific you are and not you should. I really like that differentiation. So tell me a little bit. Now, I have some questions surrounding the blog and the business behind the blog. So first, I would love to hear where you came up with that name. And then was it difficult to essentially start your own online business? Maybe you had some prior knowledge. Maybe you didn't on websites, SEO. There's a lot that goes into this. And then a question I have to ask is, have you monetized a blog? I know that's a lot of questions, so feel free to no, start no, anywhere. The name I Am Lost and Found was just an attempt throwing a lot of words on paper, seeing what felt right. I, I finally came up with Lost and Found, and I loved the feeling of that. And of course, I went to plug it in and it was taken, as most people who try to name their blog, their brand, I've discovered that somebody already owns it. So I was a bit discouraged. And we happened to be on vacation with the kids over New Year in Turks and Caicos. And I'm scribbling in my notebook, complaining to my husband that Lost and Found is taken. And he said, why don't you call it I am Lost and Found? And I thought that was, don't tell him this, but I thought it was brilliant. But then putting together the website took months and months I didn't have any experience with WordPress. I was self-taught, made many mistakes, hired a tech support person that I found on Upwork, which I recommend Upwork. I use it for lots of projects, big and small. And he has now become my tech guru that when my that glitch happens, I text him, he fixes it. Because although I now have 80 plus blog posts on my site, things, things do go bump in the night. And they're mostly things I don't know how to fix myself. As far as your question of monetization, I will say that it is a goal of mine to earn money doing something I love doing. With that said, I have not earned much money yet, but I am putting myself out there as a travel writer and really with the hopes of being hired by publications to write about travel. So my blog is one extension, sort of my portfolio of my travel writing. And then Jamie Edwards as a, as a travel writer separately. I do write for a few other platforms beyond my own where I get paid. So that is my goal is to get paid to write about travel. I love that. What an amazing goal. So talk to me a little bit about now you you do get paid and you monetize your travel experience through travel writing. So what has that journey looked like for you to do something that you love and make money? It's interesting because, as I mentioned, I was trained as a graphic designer in advertising. I was an art director and I worked with a writer. I was paired with a writer. 
And I was always the art side and my partner was always the writer. And I think the best relationships between that kind of partnership is where the writer knows 25% about art and the art director would know at least 25% about the writing. So there's, there's good marriage. For me to then flop becoming a writer was a big, was a lot for me to take on because I did not think of myself as a writer. But it's been about six years now and I feel more confident with my voice every, every day, every piece I put out there. I truly do love writing. I spend a lot of time thinking about future posts, what I'd like to write about. And as I said earlier, too, it's become a really wonderful creative outlet for me. And and you saying that makes me think, what is some advice, because you, you said you have been doing this for quite a few years, advice that you would give to somebody who is looking to start something in the online space where they have the freedom and the ability to go when they want, where they want, and who wants to really monetize their experience, their knowledge, and likely that may be from travel, that may be from something else. But what are some starting steps or advice that you would give to somebody? Well, my advice would be to get to know WordPress or whatever platform you use inside and out, to know your content before you just start building a site. I know it's a cliche, but content is everything. If you don't have good content, whether it's Instagram or your website, no one will ever look at it. So really make sure the content is refined and something you're proud of, even if that means revising it 50 times. Once that hurdle is taken care of, of having your name and buying it, buying the domain name, I think it just becomes after the content being willing to wait and be patient with it because it's a lot, it's slow going when it comes to growth and rankings on Google. It took me at least three or four years for some of my pages to start ranking on page one of Google. And it can get discouraging, I understand. And a blog is a, not only a time suck, but a money pit with all the things that you have to do to help maintain it. So some of my advice would definitely be to not get discouraged and stick with it. Because once I started hitting page one of Google for some of my pieces, the other started flowing. And I think that that was a special, it definitely got the ball rolling. What did your SEO journey look like from not knowing how to set up a, a website in WordPress to ranking on page one of Google? That's phenomenal. Congratulations. Yes, a lot of in-depth research, that is for sure. Making sure every single blog post. Well, I use Uber Suggest, which and some people use SEMrush, which are two programs you can use where you can help find SEO terms and keywords that you can plug into your piece. I do think as a writer though, I like I I definitely want to be known as a travel writer rather than a travel blogger, and that there is a distinction between the two, which we can talk about. I have nothing against blogging. I am a blogger as well. But I like the pieces that are more literary when I write some pieces that are more literary and more storytelling rather than 24 hours in Merida or top five things to do in Iceland. And I have quite a few of those pieces on my website, but the ones I like to write the most are more thought-provoking, talk more in-depth about a place I've been, whether... For instance, it was tracking the silverback gorillas in Uganda or, I mean, just like talking with a, sh uh, a polar explorer while we were in Finland. 
things like that come to mind, the the people I've met along the way. So I think that it's also somewhat important to define your niche. Going back to your original question, my original niche was luxury travel. And it's not news. A lot of people will already know this, that the more narrow your niche is, the better it's going to be to help you rank and find your audience. If your niche is travel, well, it's just too big. But if your niche is family travel at U.S. parks, then you're going to define your audience. So I kind of morphed from luxury travel to luxury and adventure travel. And then I changed it to, which kind of goes against what I just said, to inspiring travel. And I do that because I feel that luxury is a term that is overused, means something different to everyone. What my definition of luxury is is certainly different than yours, Nicole, and my dad's. So inspiring travel is really what what I want to do. And I do it more from a a high-end luxury and adventure viewpoint. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So, okay, so let's talk. I want to touch on some other topics with you, but to kind of finish this topic out, what do you think are some next trends in the travel industry, travel space? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that I always am searching around for. I think that there are quite a few interesting travel trends emerging. One that I've noticed is experience tourism, which are things that cannot be replicated, things that are sort of for you only, more bespoke, whether that is going to the Atlas Mountains of Morocco and having a Berber guy take you into a pedestrian-only village and go into someone's home for a tea ceremony. This combination of of doing things that you can come home and no one else has done already. A lot of people can go off to the Four Seasons in Punta Mita, and that's a beautiful family holiday. I'm not knocking it. But if you're more interested in doing something that's not been done, there are so many things experientially you can do now, and there's a lot of places that are are filling that gap of doing this super high-end hospitality combined with high-end adventure and luxury. So another one I think is an important travel trend right now emerging is art tourism. And I don't mean going to the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay. I mean people who are traveling for specific types of textiles, fabrics, pottery, ceramics. I happen to collect ceramics and I know that whenever I travel, I seek that out. So much, much more narrow than museums and galleries talking about the graffiti in La Boca, for instance, like people who travel to see really unique art or Banksy for that matter. And then you find there are all these hotels that are now leaning into art where it used to be hotel art was like a real negative comment. But now a lot of hotels, like for instance, the Pendry in Baltimore is really leaning into the culture of Baltimore with the art that they have on the walls uh, and the sculptures. So I think art tourism is another one. Uh, I would say rail tourism is big. People taking slow travel very seriously and their carbon footprint. So there's the Belmond at the highest end, the Belmond Orient Express between Paris and European cities. And then the Glacier Express in Switzerland. Those are really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And I have something to say on almost every point, but what really stood out to me was the art tourism. I think that's so interesting. And it reminds me when I went to, we were in Bogota 
I had no idea that it was so well known for its street graffiti and that its graffiti was really arch. And I believe we were in Medellin. Yes, in Comuna 13. But it's graffiti, but it's all commissioned and they only allow a select few of the locals who are the graffiti artists to do the work. And I had no idea. It's not just anybody doing this graffiti. It's so interesting. I think that that is something that is incredibly niche also. I, I happen to have a, I have a background in art, yet I still don't love going to museums when I go on vacation. I like to be outside. I like to wander more than I like to be confined to a museum. And my husband actually complained that he gets a backache every time he goes into a museum. So we have found that other types of art are really interesting along the way. And there's a, a New York Times article that came out recently that really struck me about a town in Romania that's known for their ceramics. Like I said, I collect ceramics. And they, it's, the town is called Herezu, and it's about, wow, it's about three, mi- three hours from Bucharest, so it's not easy to get to. But this town has been doing cer- centuries of this particular ceramic style. And it just highlighted to me how this is an important trend. People want to collect things from their travels that have meaning. I know that that's very important to me. It's it's so interesting that you bring this up too, because I had a podcast guest a few months back on the show, and I had never thought about this as a concept or, you know, of course, me thinking about it as a business. But she mentioned that she went to, I think she was in Bali and she was Canadian. And she was just went live on Instagram at one of the really beautiful markets where the local people are selling the local things that they make. And People started going, oh, I want that. Oh, can you bring me that? And she was like, oh, my gosh, I think I have something here. And so I thought that was so interesting. So I like that you kind of have your own variation of that. I do. I do. Well, I have a collection of bowls that I've been collecting. My husband and I have been collecting for years. We probably have about 30 from 30 different countries, places. And every single bowl is a memory of that trip. So I always joke that the bowls hold my memories and we have them out and I had to start labeling them underneath because I can't remember what's from where anymore. But it's always a good story behind finding whether it's a piece of artwork, a a scroll, a tapestry, whatever it is. It's just the memories are really attached to those pieces more so than, of course, the the T-shirt or any any other trinket. And I know not everybody cares about that, but that's definitely something that matters to me. I love that you have to start labeling them because you have so many. That's a good sign. You recently went to Antarctica. Talk to me a little bit about that trip. And we are actually in Argentina. And I believe you have to leave at the tip of Argentina. I think that that's really cool because I'm here now. So tell me a little bit more about what that experience was like. So you're correct. We did. We flew to Ushuaia. First to Buenos Aires and Buenos Aires to Ushuaia, which is the southernmost tip of uh, South America, where we picked up our vessel called the Ultramarine. But the background to that story is that I, my bucket list, wish list was to go to all seven continents. And that was my seventh continent. And Two years ago, I asked my stepfather, maybe it was three years ago, he's 78, I asked my stepfather to join me. My husband did not have an interest in going. My mother is not adventurous. And I thought, who can I bring along that I don't really have to entertain or talk to if I don't want to? Just someone I'm so comfortable with that it would just be easy. And I thought of my stepfather. And even before I could get the words Antarctica out of my mouth, he said yes. And we booked it. 
But then COVID did push it by, I guess, a year or two. So we went this past January and it was worth waiting for. I will tell you that I, out of the 136 passengers on the boat, I'd say most of them, it was their seventh continent as well and their wish. But the excursion and the vessel were so, like the highest levels of adventure, safety, wildlife, conservation, sustainability, they just ticked every single box. The boat itself was purpose-built for Arctic travel and Antarctic travel, which meant that it had not been repurposed where the Zodiacs that you get on the boats to go um, see the wildlife, you don't have to wait for them to be dropped down. They're all at sea level already. There were so many nice touches that they did to make it easy for, for travelers to visit the White Continent. And my stepfather and I sea kayaked seven times. We had a humpback whale reach in front of us and then go underneath our kayaks, which was a highlight of my life. We saw Weddell seals, three different kinds of penguins. We weathered the Drake Passage with just under hurricane winds, which was 10 hours of lockdown in our cabins, which were the most exciting 10 hours of my life, I think. I'm only upset that it's over. I would go back in a heartbeat. That's so cool. And I can tell that you love the adventure when you're like the most exciting 10 hours of my life. Being enough for a game in Antarctica. I love that. Yeah, so really, I have to say that I had thought about the Drake Passage and very naively, I kept focusing on one way, completely forgetting that you have to come back. And a lot of people have asked me because they do, even the, the expedition company I worked with, which was called Quark, they have opportunities where you can fly. You can fly rather than take the ship or you fly to the ship to avoid the Drake Passage. And I wouldn't have avoided that for all the money in the world. I think it was part of the adventure. And when people asked me, would I do that again, even with those strong winds, I said I would. I felt very safe. And I do think that if you go to Antarctica and don't cross the Drake Passage, you are you're kind of selling yourself short, your adventure short. Okay, so what exactly is the Drake Passage? I feel like a lot of people listening are going to be like, I need to Google this. But what is it and what makes it so thrilling? So the Drake Passage, when you get to Ushuaia and you pick up the ship, there is this, once you get out of the bay, there is this huge body of water where the Atlantic and the Pacific meet, and it's called the Drake Passage. That is a whole body of water until you get to the Antarctic Peninsula. What's scary about the Drake Passage is just that it's completely unpredictable. You don't know what the weather is going to be from day to day, pretty much. And it's a two-day crossing. So once you get in, you're in and you're going through it. And so we have two days going through where you don't see land at all and anything can happen weather-wise, which is why Antarctica is not for everyone. If you don't, if you don't have a, a sense of adventure in the, in the way that, um, if that would really scare you, then I think that it's right not to go. I think it caters to a very small group of people who find that thrilling. So the Drake Passage is that body of water. And then, of course, you get to the peninsula and then you're somewhat sheltered once you hit Antarctica. But then, of course, you have to go back. And when we went back, we actually got left a little bit early because they were predicting some weather in the passage. Little did we know that we were going to get hit with what was probably the worst winds the boat had ever experienced. We found that out 
later. So cool. What an experience. So I want to chat to you about off air. We were talking a little bit about your both of your children have done gap years and um, I'm sure your daughter probably is learning or speaking their language and your son is. So tell me a little bit about what it has looked like for you. And you have raised your kids in Asia, I believe, and also in the U.S. And me being from Canada, I know that there was very minimal outside culture and influences in my educational experience. So talk to me about raising global citizen children in, I'm sure in Japan, it's very different and I'd be interested on that was like, but also in the U.S. where it maybe can be a little bit more difficult to find different cultures. Oh, those are great questions. Well, we moved to Tokyo when my kids were six months and two. So we put them in an immersion school in Tokyo so that they could, not so that they become fluent in Japanese, but more because they were going to be living there a long time, three years or four years. We wanted them to be able to have conversations with people who are not American. So that was really worthwhile from the point of view of them assimilating. I will say that when I, my husband first said, <laughs> would you like to move to Tokyo? My first reaction was not, yeah, let's go. It was like, what the, you know, definitely a little bit taken off guard. But once I wrapped my head around it, I thought it was such a great opportunity for our entire family to experience the United States from the outside in. And I think that very few people get that opportunity. So from the point of view of my children, they went to school with kids who were half French, half Swedish, half English, half Australian, half Japanese, half Korean, fully Korean. They were exposed to kids from and people from all over the world in our community. They were exposed to foods from all over the world. When we travel to Vietnam or Thailand, they didn't have chicken nuggets. We, they ate Vietnamese food. They ate Japanese food. They didn't love everything, but they learned to appreciate a lot of different cultures, languages, and it was easy, of course, to raise a global child when you're living in Japan. But to your point, when we moved back, a little bit harder, although we live in Washington, D.C., which is very global, and the schools that our kids went to, the public school our child children went to had kids from 40 different countries. So there was a lot of influence. But to keep it up, we definitely always traveled all these years to unique locations or places that took them outside of their comfort zone. We spent a lot of time going to South America and Central America, Colombia, just Belize, multiple times to different parts of Mexico, Argentina, Uruguay. And I think this all just helped facilitate their love of other cultures and travel. So when it came time for my daughter to go to college, she opted to take a gap year. And we were very excited for her. And she spent time organic farming in South Africa. She worked in a medical clinic in the townships. She actually delivered six babies, which was, that's what happens when you're in South and you have a pair of hands, you can deliver a baby. And now my son is uh, considering a gap year in China. And I know that China is near and dear to you. Oh, it so is. Yeah. And I was telling you off of air, like, do it. There's so many things I recommend doing and seeing in China. That's amazing. I love that. And I love that you consciously thought about that in raising your kids and wanting to have that kind of third culture element to or, or second culture element to their upbringing. So 
to end off, is there anything you feel like we have not touched on here that you want to bring to light that maybe an actionable tip, anything that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I guess knowing that your podcast is about kind of finance and wealth and people maybe who are starting in this year that I'm now six years into, uh, I, I'm not going to say this is advice, but I'll say it from my perspective. Uh, the, the biggest the biggest thing takeaways I have is, like I said earlier, to be very patient that good things will come and to write and do what you love, which I know sounds like, of course, common sense. But it was one of the best tips I was given whenever I sit down to write, write what I know, write what I love and the words come easier. So and I have faith that good things will come for people who just plow away at the things they enjoy doing. Yeah, I love that. And I totally agree. You know, I've started and I always go back to my personal experience in this. I've started ventures in the past that I was not fully and truly passionate about. And those don't really lead anywhere because, yes, if you grow them and scale them and if it's not something that your heart is truly in, it's not going to be as big as it could be. So I could not agree with that more. So where can people find you online and your blog? Oh, yes. Well, my website is called lostandfound.com. And that's where I have all of my firsthand experiences of my of, of our travels. And on Instagram, I am lostandfound underscore. So I am lostandfound underscore and my, my website. And I hope it inspires travel. That's it. You've just listened to the Work, Wealth and Travel podcast. If anything from this episode resonated with you, I would appreciate if you share this podcast on your socials. And of course, be sure to tag me. And don't forget to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me on this global citizen journey, and I'll see you in the next episode.